great to see you guys today. Um, this morning, the Damrons are still on their vacation. They'll be arriving back in town uh, this Wednesday evening. And I've got a question for you. Are you guys ready to get back into the book of Revelation? Yeah, you like that sound effect we just did there? That with the moths this week flying around town. You know, kind of Revelation-like feel there for you. <laughs> yeah, so we are back in the, Revela- in the book of Revelation. It seems like, you know, it's been a year since we were in chapter 16, right? You know, like five weeks, but it just seems like a really long time. So we are in chapter 17 this morning. Here's how relevant the book of Revelation is. Um, we've seen in our study so far, and, and, and some of today is you know, got a reference because you've been through the book so far, but we have seen in our study so far that after the rapture of the church of believers, a seven-year peace plan will uh, be brokered to start the seven-year tribulation. And uh, that is a peace plan that will eventually be broken by the Antichrist halfway through or three and a half years into it. A few weeks ago, Just talking about some news here, Uh, borders in the nation of Israel became an issue when President Obama, in a major Mideast policy speech, took the position that uh, negotiations on the final borders of the Jewish nation and, and the Palestinian states must be based on Israel's 1967 borders before capturing East Jerusalem, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip. Uh, lands the Palestinians claimed for their hoped-for state. And then it was May 24th. This is less than two weeks ago, and I don't know how many of you saw it, but Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu spoke to a joint meeting of Congress. That's when the House of Representatives and the Senate come together. And uh, he spoke, this, the, the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, spoke and he talked about peace and he said they would not go back to the 1967 borders of the nation of Israel because it made Israel undefensible. And he talked about peace in the Middle East and what must happen and what they are willing to do for peace to happen in, in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and, and what concessions they were willing to make and all of these things. And I was, I was just glued to the news. I don't know how many of you saw him speak to our Congress, uh, but it, it, was, it was awesome. And uh, he gave a really well-spoken speech. And there was like 30 standing ovations and things like that. And he talked about the relationship with Israel and the United States. And so, you know, I, might, I started perking up and listening to this and, and watched the whole thing. And uh, I was just waiting for him or for someone to say, I have here this proposal for a seven-year peace plan. <laughs> you know, I was just like, wow, this is, this is so relevant to what is going on. Well, when we left off in our study through the book of Revelation uh, five weeks ago, we left off in chapter 16 with what was called the seven bowl judgments. These were judgments that were being poured out on those who have rejected Christ. Now, chapter 17 today is an expansion of that. It's an expansion on that seventh bowl judgment. And uh, we find here in chapter 17, we're going to read about the downfall of the Antichrist's one world religion, a conglomeration 
of belief systems that have been put together. So in chapter 16, we saw these seven bold judgments, the last judgments. These are all taking place near the end of the seven years of the tribulation. God's wrath being poured out on this earth. And it's going to be detailed in these next three chapters. So 17, 18, and 19. Uh, John, who's writing here in the book of Revelation, has told us already that Babylon would fall. He writes, Babylon would fall. Well, let's define Babylon this morning as we get going, because we're going to say that word a lot. So in your notes this morning, it says, Babylon, the religious, political, and economic empire of the Antichrist. Basically, his empire, okay, that that world-dominating power that will be in the last times. That is Babylon. And when we say the spirit of Babylon, that's anything in the spirit of his control of those things, the religious, political, and economic empire. Okay, So we come to chapter 17 today, and we come to the religious downfall. Of, of Babylon. So if, you're, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and find Revelation chapter 17. If you're using one of those Bibles that you've picked up on the back tables there, that's on page 498. It's practically the end of the book, so uh, you can turn there if you would like to. So the religious downfall, chapter 17. Then next week we'll get to chapter 18 and we will see the political and economic downfall of Babylon, which remember is the speaking of the empire, the Antichrist. Then we'll get to chapter 19 and we will see this battle that we've alluded to since chapter 16, but more specifically in chapter 19, the battle of Armageddon. Then the culmination of of all of those things and with the second coming of Christ, the return of the king, which we've said all throughout, that's really the theme of the book of Revelation is the return of the king, the return of Jesus Christ, the king of kings and lord of lords. And that is is spelled out for us in chapter 20. So, there is still a lot of exciting things for us to look at over these next several chapters. So we are right now in chapter 17 in the timeline. It's the end of the, it's towards the end part of the seven-year tribulation. In chapter 16, we were told about a judgment that is going to happen. In chapter 17, today, we're told what it's going to look like. All right? It's, it's kind of like uh, when you pick up the newspaper. You know, there's a title of an article and then maybe a little bit of a summary. And then it says, turn to page, you know, three. And then you open the newspaper up and then you get the details on another page. And that is exactly what John is doing here. He said in chapter 16, this is going to happen. And today we get to look at what it's going to look like in chapter 17. The Apostle John writing this, he gives us this morning three descriptions about the fall of this false one world religion, which is he symbolizes by a harlot, a prostitute. He uses that symbolism and a a lot of other symbolism as well and we'll we'll explain that uh, today. Before we jump into those three descriptions, would you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for uh, today and bringing everyone who is here into your house as we worship you and as we proclaim your name. God, I know that you desire for us to always be growing closer to you. 
Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and our minds this morning. Um, God, that uh, we would understand this text, but also you would challenge us in an individual way. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, look at Revelation chapter 17, and let's read together verses 1 and 2. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And we'll stop right there. Boy, you can see the symbolism right away. And your first point this morning in John's first description is her allure. Her allure, this this, uh, harlot and her allure, the allure of the one world religious system. And John is invited in the beginning of the chapter here to see this harlot who sits on many waters, it says. Well, why, why, why do we have symbolism of the harlot here? What's going on? Well, in the Bible, all throughout the Bible, the term harlot is often used to describe false religion, Spiritual idolatry, apostasy, that's unfaithfulness, so being spiritually unfaithful. There were even times in the Old Testament when the children of Israel, God's chosen people, were in places worshiping other gods and false idols, and God said to them, you're playing the harlot. You're being spiritually unfaithful to me. Well, how would you want that said about you, you know? You're playing the harlot. What a horrible thing uh, to be said about you. But they were being spiritually unfaithful. Now, obviously, the exact opposite is, uh, is the true faithful followers of Christ. And in Scripture, they are called and referred to the bride of Christ. So, the great harlot, it's a one-world religion. It's a false religion. It says in that, in that passage we just read there that she'll sit on many waters uh, in verse 2, which uh, we'll see verse 15 explains to us is the nations of the world. So this is a false religious system that encompasses the world. It's a one world religious system. It, it, it involves all the citizens of the world, and they are worshiping anything besides the one true God. Well, what denomination does this come out of? Baptists? Just kidding. That's a total joke. <laughs> I went to a Baptist seminary, so I can say that and, you know, not be offended. Just joking with you. I don't believe it's just one. So don't think in terms like that. Don't think in terms of a denominational title. Because by this point in the tribulation, it's really a unification of all false religions, false doctrines. It defines an unfaithful, false church. We're told that its influence it reaches into high places in verse number 2 there. It talks about the, the kings and the kings of the earth and that the people of the world will be, will be drunk, will be intoxicated with her allure. So from the highest places, verse 2 says, uh, around the world, the palaces, the places of leadership, to the everyday person. You see, people will not be able to get enough of her, of this one world religion. The allure will be so powerful. We're going to say religion a lot today, so let me define religion for you in a real simple, easy way. And this is in your notes as well. Religion, a system where man tries to reach God by various means. 
where man tries to reach God oftentimes by good works, by doing something to get to God. By the way, and we'll touch on this later, the Orchard Church is not about religion. You know, the Bible is not about religion. So there's this one world religion, there's this allure. Well, what's the allure? What's the, why is it so attractive? What's going on here? I believe it's because what the system has to offer. It'll be a system of tolerance. Hey, let's put aside our differences, you know? There's no absolute truth. You know, let's just come together and you believe what you want to believe and I'll believe what I want to believe. And, you know, all spokes lead to God. There's many ways to God. Is that what the Bible says? No. You know, it was God that walked this earth that said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by me. But it'll be this, this, hey, let's all just get along and meld together, and it doesn't matter what you believe. And, you know, we even, even today have this tragic idea that we can pick and choose what we believe from the Bible, kind of like we pick our clothes out in the morning or we pick our fast food meal. You know, and that, that's a tragic thing. But it'll be like this. As long as you believe in your God or your higher power or whatever you want to call him or her, and uh, all paths will lead us to goodness and, and, and a, a better place. No, it won't. But that, that'll be this one world religion. Um, the, the one world religion, you say, you know, gosh, I really don't see that happening. I, I don't see that on the horizon anywhere. Well, there are some things in process, even today, uh, for a one-world religion, there are, and man, you can, you can read about this in the news from time to time. Once in a while, you see it come up in a news article. There are summit meetings of faiths, uh, sometimes sponsored by the United Nations, bringing faiths together to talk about, uh, you know, being one and world peace and things like that. I recently went to the University of Denver for a, uh, what's called a TEDx event. I don't know if you're familiar with TEDx, but they're nationwide on campuses, and they are events where they bring in speakers that talk about uh, technology, um, entertainment, and uh, all these diverse things, design, and, and all of the, they bring in speakers on these topics, and uh, at the last one I was at, there, there was uh, three guys who spoke, and they were called the Interfaith Amigos. And, uh, and they were at this event. It was a rabbi, an Islamic imam or pastor, and a, uh, a minister from a congregational United Church of Christ. Sounds like a joke, doesn't it? Into a bar walked a rabbi, an Islamic dude, a priest, a pastor from the Orchard Church. And, you know, it's like, it, sounds, it sounds almost like a joke. But they spoke at this event, and their message was, we all need to come together and figure out the world's problems. And we're, so we're seeing beginnings of this take shape right before our eyes. And uh, that was within the last month I was at that event. So John first describes the allure, how attractive this will be, this one world religion symbolized by the harlot. And then he goes on to describe, and this is number two this morning, her appearance, her appearance. We get into some more symbolism here, but look with me at verses three through six. 
It says, so he carried me away into the, in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, that's Our Lady in red, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. And let's just stop right there. So verse 3 here we see this harlot symbolizing a one-world religion, sitting on a scarlet beast, which you, you have to go back to our study in chapter 13, and if you haven't been with us through this, you can watch those on our website. Uh, but back in chapter 13, we know that the beast is the Antichrist. It is a, a person who rises out of humanity and is empowered by Satan. In other words here, as we uh, just got into our text about her riding on this beast, the Antichrist is supporting this one world religion, the global government of the Antichrist will support and work with and alongside this one world religion in conjunction with one another to seduce the world in these end times. It says here that uh, it's, uh, it, had, it was full of names of blasphemy which any, any part of Satan is or any false church would be. It references seven heads, having seven heads and ten horns. Whoa, you're like, what in the world here? Seven heads is a reference to a location, and we'll talk about that a little bit more as we get down into the chapter. And ten horns is a reference to government, which Scripture interprets for us in just a little bit. But if you'll remember, we studied back in chapter 13 and this ten-horned beast came up. And we, if you remember from our study, it's a reference to ten kingdoms and their ten rulers from the old Roman Empire, which is modern-day Europe. Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, if you want to jot that down and look into that later, detail how the Antichrist will form a united nations of this old Roman Empire, so you could say united nations of Europe from ten nations. You say, wow, you know, I don't really, I don't see that coming. Is that on the radar anywhere? Well, we, you know, I, I know I've referenced, uh, we have referenced an article in here before about um, something called the Club of Rome. And this is an organization that had its beginnings all the way back in the late 60s, early 70s, who have um, been a proponent of uniting 10 countries uh, together for figuring out world peace and prosperity. And uh, they've, they've done some things in this article that talk about them getting together and, and, and gathering ten kingdoms, dividing the world up into these ten areas for uh, certain reasons. And they even in this article call them kingdoms. And um, they even talk about, we, it says here we already have worked out a world constitution and parliament association. So, you know, some of these things have been thought of. Some of these things, the ball is rolling on these uh, ideas here. It was the Belgium's uh, premier who made the statement that the truth is international communities have failed in the past. But he, went, he goes on to say in this article, and I quote, what we need is a person. Someone of the highest order and great energy, let him come and let him come quickly. Either a civilian or a military man, no matter what he is nationally, 
who can cut through all the red tape and shove out all the committees, wake up the people, and galvanize all governments into action. Let him come quickly, this man we need and for whom we will wait to take charge. Uh, and he says, once again, I say it's not too late, but it's high time. So, you know, some of the, you, you run across some of these things in the news where it is, uh, it is, you know, you see little bits of it coming into play and, and the thoughts of, hey, let's, let's gather the nations like this. Uh, it's interesting, and I'll let you look into it later. It's just interesting, I'll just say this. But on one of the euros in Europe and on one of their stamps, and really throughout their culture, is a woman riding a beast, and sometimes it's a bull. And to them it means, and I have family in Manchester, England, and um, it, it, to them it means it's a representative of, of some Greek mythology and a, and a princess of Phoenicia uh, called Europa. But, it, but it's interesting that that's already permeated their culture, the symbol of a woman on a beast in Europe. Well, we see here in verse 4 some more about her appearance it talks about what she was dressed in, some expensive garments here, decorated with gold and precious stones. She's holding a cup in her hand, and she's drunk with the blood of the saints. And so and we read dressed in purple and the scarlet, and it speaks of her high cost, what people are willing to pay. Gold and precious stones adorn her, and it adds to her allure, and I believe it also speaks of the great wealth that this one-world religion, this false church, will have behind it. It says that she has a gold cup in her hand, it speaks of wealth and status, but when the cup is tipped, as we read, it's full of abominations and filthiness. And I couldn't help this week when I read that to think and contrast that with Jesus, and in the garden, he prayed, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. And he was talking about the cup of suffering and God's wrath being poured out on him. And it was, and he went to the cross, and he died for us. And he took that cup of suffering, but it offered us salvation. And in this one world religion, in the end times, it's a gold cup. And it doesn't offer salvation. It's filled with abominations and filthiness, our text says. Verse 5 here, uh, we read, and it says that uh, there's a name written on the forehead of the harlot. A, a name there. Boy, there's been lots of forehead writing in the book of Revelation, hasn't there? You know, back in chapter 7, we had these Jewish missionaries, and God puts his name on their foreheads, and then kind of in a mockery to that, the Antichrist in chapter 13 says, okay, well, the people of the world need to take uh, my number or my name on their forehead or right hand. And so in Bible times, and as John was writing this, in that time, prostitutes would wear their name on their forehead on a piece of cloth, a bandana-like if you will. And so the name on this harlot's forehead is given to us in verse number five. It says, Mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Uh, remember, remember harlot in scripture, what that means, what that refers to, that spiritual unfaithfulness. This is the mother of all harlots. This is the worst of it. This is the most spiritually unfaithful here. The word mystery Right there in verse 5, oftentimes uh, means in the Old Testament there was something that was not known or not understood or revealed, but then would be revealed in the New Testament. 
Well, what is being revealed? It says there, mystery, comma, Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great. And by the time we get to this point in Scripture, Babylon has been mentioned 300 times already and is now being fully understood and fully revealed in the Bible. Historically, Babylon begins with the Tower of Babel. You remember that story, that account in Scripture in Genesis chapter 11 where there's a people and they had a leader and they were, they were told to scatter and multiply across the earth, but they disobeyed God and they stayed in one place and they said, we're going to build a tower into the heavens and, and it's going to be for us and we're going to make a name for us. And this is all in Genesis 11 and, and it's a story of pride and rebellion and, and man's way to God which is religion. And from that point and all throughout history, you can trace a spirit of Babylon. A spirit of Babylon, and remember, defined like earlier, anything against God, anything in the, the spirit of the empire of the Antichrist, anything anti-Christ against him, worldly influence. And it comes to an apex here in chapter 17 of Revelation and, and finally, this, this now final one world religion is termed Babylon, the great mother of all harlots. You know, so from Genesis chapter 11, all the way through here now, we have the spirit of Babylon building up to this point, chapter 17. Um, I want to show you something that's interesting. And, you know, I didn't dig this up on a weird religious site. I didn't make this up last night uh, after eating pizza or whatever. You know, I, th this, I got this off of mainstream news, cable news. And I saw it and I was like, wow. I think I'll share that with everybody. It's just, it's interesting. That's all I'm saying. So we have an artist rendition here of the Tower of Babel. It's kind of your classic rendition of the Tower of Babel. And it's, you see it's uncomplete looking there at the top. And I was watching cable news, and they did this piece on the Tower of Babel and how the European Union Parliament building was designed to look like that, kind of incomplete at the top. And this was on mainstream news, and I was like, hmm, that's, that's interesting. Is Babylon going to be in Europe? I, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't think dogmatically anybody could say, but I just thought that was interesting. And then here's what was really interesting. You know, outside there's some statues around buildings and things like that. Here's a couple of them right there. And there's a, here's another one right there. So just something that's a part of their culture that I, I found very interesting uh, with, with their architecture and, and what's already a part of their culture in these statues. Verse 6, we move on here, and it says this, that she was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs. And so we read this here, those, those throughout history, the, the believers throughout history, and then martyrs, those who have been killed for their stand for Christ, like those we will read about. We're going to get to chapter 20 in Revelation, and we read about some people who stand for Christ and the Word of God, and because of that, they're beheaded because of their witness. So we're going to get to that in chapter 20. Or we, we covered already back in chapter 7, there were those standing in heaven wearing white robes, and, and it was asked, who are these people? And the answer was given, you know, they're those who have died for their faith. 
So this causes John's jaw to drop, if you will, the last part of verse 6 there. And he marveled with great amazement. And I don't think he was impressed, but I believe that he was he couldn't believe the allure and the amazement and the symbolism and the, the appearance of all of this. Remember, Satan is a fallen angel, okay? We have this caricature in our minds of this red guy with a pitchfork and a tail and horns and, you know, running around like that. But if you were to see Satan, which, by the way, I don't recommend, uh, <laughs> If, if you were to see Satan, you might be surprised at his appearance and how beautiful he is. And I think that is what is happening here with John as he sees these things. Now, thankfully, the angel gave John and us and all believers the explanation of these symbols. Let's pick it up in verse number 7, and uh, we're going to go all the way through verse 15. Okay, so, so hang with me here. He's unpacking some of these details now. Verse 7 says, But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not, and yet is. Explain that in just a moment, because you're probably going, what in the world? Verse 9, here's the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. It's a geographical location I alluded to earlier. Verse 10, there are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, at the time of this writing of John, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth, and is of the seventh, and is going to perdition or destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom yet. Remember that old Roman Empire, nations in Europe? But they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. One hour, short time. Uh, these are of one mind, and they will give their power to, and authority to the beast. They will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are called... Chosen and faithful. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw, where the harlot sits, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And we'll stop right there. Wow! Just a, a whole lot more there and some more symbolism. Uh, let's not be confused by that. And the, he's alluding to some events that have taken place already in the tribulation and, and are about to take place. So let's talk about those. Verses 7 and 8, and we're not going to read all of these again. That's why you have your Bible open there before you. Verses 7 and 8, speaking of the coming of the Antichrist. He's referencing back now to he will come on the scene, a man, and he is possessed by the power of Satan. We detailed this in Revelation chapter 13. Going to perdition. It says he's going to go to perdition or, or destruction. It's a reference that he will be destroyed eventually in the end, that God will cast him into the lake of fire. It says here that, that the people of the earth marvel at him. You know, that's, that's talking about... Uh, they're, they're just drawn to him, and they follow. Well, why do they marvel at him? And you'll remember this back from chapter 13 on our study there. We read about this one world leader called the Antichrist and how there is an assassination attempt on his life. 
And he seems to be mortally wounded, and they're like, he's dead. And he quickly recovers and, and has like a mock resurrection, and people believe he has resurrected. And they marvel at him because of this. And they, they see this. It's a mockery of the resurrection of Christ. But he appears to die. Come back to life. Okay? So we read here in our text that it says that he was, is not, and yet is. That's a reference to him coming on the scene, is not, thought he was dead. And then he, he comes back in this pseudo-false resurrection and says, hey, I'm, I'm back alive. And yet is. That's what that is a reference to. And it freaks out the world when this happens. The world follows him. And com they commit themselves to him. They're like, wow, you are, you are amazing. We're going to follow you. And in verse 9, we reference there, there's a reference to the seven heads that are seven mountains on which a woman sits. And this is in your notes. Historically, in, in secular history and writings, there is one location on this earth, one geographic location on this earth, earth that is consistently described as uh, the place with seven mountains, and that is Rome, the city of Rome. So this one world religion is headquartered there. That's where she sits, it says. Now, is this the true location of Babylon, Pastor Barry? I, I don't know. I don't think anybody dogmatically can say, will Babylon, old Babylon, be rebuilt physically? I can't say dogmatically. I mean, personally, I lean towards, yes, it will be. Uh, and that would reside in modern-day Iraq. You know, um, so what's going on here with Rome and Babylon, uh, all of these things here? You know, I lean towards Babylon being rebuilt at one point, down by the Euphrates River where it existed a long time ago. My personal opinion is that religious Babylon, the Empire of the Antichrist, is headquartered in Rome. The economic and political empire, headquartered in Babylon. Whether that's at its old spot in Iraq or in Europe somewhere, you know, I don't think anybody can say dogmatically on that, but, but definitely we see this one world religion and its influence and in coming out of Rome. Verse number 10 referenced there, again, those seven world empires or, or dominant powers of the world at their time, which we know from history are Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, you know, and you had Nebuchadnezzar in there, Medo-Persian Empire, Greece, Rome, as John is writing this in A.D. 95-ish uh, is, is the one that is, and then the one that is yet to come is the empire of the Antichrist. So verse 10 mentions these, these uh, kingdoms, and there is one that is going on right now, Rome, as John writes this, and then the one to come is the empire of the Antichrist. Verse 11, he references that the, and it's, it can be confusing here at a first read, it says that, you know, he's not, is himself also the eighth, he's of the seventh, and is going to perdition or destruction. It's like, what does that mean there? He's referencing that the Antichrist is of the seventh world empire, along with those ten united countries. So he's a part of that. But he himself alone, without the ten, is the eighth world empire. That's what that is a reference to there. He will cut off those ten, and they will, or actually they will turn... Uh, power over to him, and he will be the eighth alone. Verses 12 and 13 here, where a, the angel tells John, 
You know, he says, and to us today, the ten hordes are ten kings. And remember, we had studied that out previously about the ten uh, countries of the old Roman Empire are from Europe. It says here that they will have authority for one hour. That's symbolic of a short period of time. And that they will be with the beast. Woo! So let's try to piece all this together in somewhat of a timeline. God will begin the last period of time prior to the tribulation, and we studied this in Revelation chapter 4, with the rapture of the church. We won't be here. That's good news. And you'd have to go back, but as we began the book of Revelation and got through chapters 4, 5, and 6, we saw several references and pictures of the fact that the rapture has already taken place before the tribulation begins. Then a person will arise from the sea of humanity. This person is the Antichrist. He's empowered by Satan. He comes to overnight prominence. Uh, and we, re we have studied and read about how he comes to prominence because he... Um, brings about peace in the Middle East, not just a peace that the Middle East is happy about, but that the whole world is happy about. And then during that first three and a half years of the tribulation, and there, there is peace. The Antichrist works with these ten rulers, these, this federation of ten rulers, that's those ten horns. They are working and they are serving together alongside of the Antichrist. Things are going well. There's sort of a global government several people ruling alongside with the Antichrist, then with the help of uh, the Antichrist, the false prophet comes along and establishes this one world religion. Ladies and gentlemen, meet the great harlot. And you see the Antichrist, empowered by Satan, the father of all lies, will say, we need to do this together, we need global cooperation, we need globalism, we need a one world religion, we need global economics. We need all of us to come together if this is going to work and if we are going to survive. Because you remember, and it's been a while, I know, but up to this point in chapter 17, there's been judgments poured out on this earth. You know, the sea is wrecked. The land is messed up. The environment is just in a terrible shape. Tons, thousands and thousands and thousands of people are dead. There's so many, you can't even bury them fast enough. All this is going on. It's just a horrible time. And, and, and the Antichrist unifies everybody and everything, you know. And, and they, they say, you lead us. So you, you see this Antichrist, and he's empowered by Satan. And it comes to a point where they say, the ten rulers go, you know what? We just saw you rise from the dead, <laughs> Antichrist. We're turning our power over to you. You don't need us. You're a god. You're deity. We will follow you and you alone. You know? And, and so he has united everything together, but then he begins his master plan. So everything's going well the first three and a half years. You know, people are somewhat happy with this peace. Do you think this is the plan of the Antichrist? To make everyone happy? You know? What, what makes you think that Satan wants that? He, you see, he doesn't. So in the middle of the tribulation, when everything is going fairly well, everyone is somewhat happy. The Antichrist, with help of the false prophet, you remember we studied this out previously, comes to Jerusalem, invades the temple, sets up an image of himself in there, pulls back the curtain and enter the dragon. You know, he is seen for who he really is. And it's time to worship 
the Antichrist, and him alone, the beast, and, and him alone. It's time to worship just him. And by the way, if you'll remember, if you don't, you're executed. The Jews see the Antichrist for who he really is and flee to uh, Petra in Jordan. If you remember, we talked about that. Then in verse 13, verse 13 there, these ten rulers are ruling with him. They're of one mind. They give their power and authority to the beast. Now understand, now you, you, you get it, hopefully, when we read that the Antichrist will be of the seventh empire, but he will be the eighth. She's part of that seventh empire with these ten rulers. But then they turn their power over to him, and he is the eighth. So Antichrist is ruling with these guys. Assassination attempt happens. He seems to come back to life. They turn over their power. They bow down to him and say, man, you, you, you just rule over us. And by the way, and we'll get to this in a moment, at this point, the Antichrist says, kill the harlot. That one world religion we've got rolling Kill it. I don't need it anymore. Enough of this one world religion. She was serving my purpose. I was using her. That's what people do with prostitutes. And instead, worship me, the Antichrist, the beast alone. So the seventh kingdom becomes the eighth kingdom or dominant world empire. That's what that is a reference to. Now look at verses 14 and 15. Uh, we read them there. But down in your Bible, it says that they're going to make war with the Lamb, the Lamb of God, who is Jesus Christ, who is God. Seriously, you want to fight with God? You know? No way. But Satan convinces the people of the earth at this time that they can do battle with God and have victory. It's a reference to this coming battle of Armageddon. By the way, you can jot this down and check it out later. Psalm chapter 2 is a song about these times on the earth. But Jesus will overcome them. And in verse 15, that reference uh, it is to this being a one world religion that she sat on many waters, which are the people of the earth, the, all the citizens of the world. Woo. So John has described here the allure of this one world religion and the appearance of her and some of that symbolism and, and those big events that happened during the tribulation. And then lastly... And this is number three. He describes her annihilation. Her annihilation. And look at verses 16 through 18 with me. It says in verse 16, And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, remember what that's a reference to, those ten rulers and ten kingdoms, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. You're not going to find that illustrated in your precious moments Bible. <laughs> hey, look at my precious moments figurines I've got over here on the table. This is out of Revelation 17. <laughs> you know? No. Not there. But you see they dismantle this one world religion. It goes on to say, verse 17, For God has put it in into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast. You know, they turn over their kingdom to the, to the Antichrist until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman who you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. And we'll stop right there. So her annihilation. Listen, Satan never really wanted a one world religion. Does this surprise anyone? 
It, it shouldn't, because that's how it all began with Satan in heaven, leading worship. The Bible tells us he was the cherub that covered, or that covereth, uh, over the throne of God. And in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, we, we read about these things and, and his fall. Uh, earlier on in the book of Revelation, we read how there's like a cherub. There's four cherubs around the throne of God, one at each corner. And I believe there was a fifth that covered. But he had pride in his heart. And Lucifer said, I will be like the Most High. I want that worship for me. And God cast him and a third of the angels that were with him out of heaven. And that is what he, he's still, in these end times here, still attempting to do what he did way back in eternity past in heaven. He tolerates the harlot for a little while, uses her. We have this one world religion, but then he tells his ten lackey kings who are under his authority to kill her, dismantle it. Hey, I don't need that one world religion anymore. Get rid of her. Annihilate her, the Antichrist says. Worship me and me alone. He's still after the same thing he was after when he was in heaven and pride entered into his heart and he was thrown out. He's still after the same thing. Verse 17 says, and this is an interesting verse in, in the midst of all this, for God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose. God will have allowed all of this. The only reason it's happening is because God allows it. And this is in your notes this morning. God is in control of all these circumstances. He's in control of all of these circumstances. It's not surprising him. He doesn't turn around and go, oh my goodness, there's this guy on the scene and what in the world happened? I was getting a massage and now I come out here and find all of this is being wrecked. No, 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 no. He knows God has foreknowledge that sees all, knows all, is all places. And, uh, and here we see that God is in control. And you know what? We would do well to remember that God is in control. You know, as I start seeing on the news, you start seeing the beginnings of the 2012 election, right? Who's running? Who's not? You know, and who's doing this and that, who's saying this, and so-and-so tweeted about this, and oh my goodness, you know, we got, this is coming up, and it's like, oh man, we got a year of this, a year plus of this, you know, and, and, and all of this is coming, and, and, and that will come, and it will happen, and, and it, you know, if, if you know me just even halfway, you know I'm for voting, and you should, your voice should be heard, and I'm for all of those things, but let me, let me just say this, whatever happens... God is in control. God is in control. And God uses some interesting, different, we might say weird stuff through the pages of this book to accomplish his purposes. You read about that and go, man, that was bad. That was wicked. Look at this thing in history. How could that happen? And God uses it for his purposes because he knows and he is in control control. And then I think about the control of our lives. All, all this crazy time that is going on here in Revelation chapter 17, you know, in, in the future, all of this that is happening, and it is so different and wicked, and the Antichrist is on the scene, and yet God is in control. You know what that tells me? 
God is in control of my life. You know, and, and I, I understand there are times we need to surrender control of certain things to God in our life, but ultimately, God is in control. And, and when, you know, my family member gets sick, you know what? God is in control. And when, when I break down, when our car breaks down, which I know like half of you saw me at 7-Eleven, like pushing my van, uh, it, it broke down. You know what? God is in control. And, and when something happens in, in the live, our lives and circumstances take place, God is in control. He can be in control of those things because we read here that he is in control in some very difficult, wicked times. He's in control. And listen, church, at this point in the tribulation, now remember, believers are gone, but there, there will be people come to Christ during this time. At this point in the tribulation, you either belong to the harlot or you identify with the bride of Christ. Man, it is one or the other. What church you go to? Yeah. Third prostitute church of Brighton. Yeah. Just kidding. You know, it's not going to be like that. But you, you, you identify with this one world religion and you are caught up in the allure of that and you are in that, you are entangled in that, and you are, you are committed to that. Or you identify with the bride of Christ and the one true God, Jesus Christ our Lord, which you'll be persecuted for and people will suffer for and people will die and give their lives for. They'll be martyred for their stand on Jesus Christ. But you'll identify with one or the other. Verse 18 reminds us that this har harlot that has been annihilated uh, and headquartered in the city of Rome, which operates in the spirit of Babylon, has had control, but uh, as we've just read, has fallen. This one world religion has been dismantled and replaced by worship of the Antichrist, the beast alone. So we've seen John describe this one world religion may use the symbol of the harlot and, and her allure and her appearance and then her annihilation of this one world religion. And as I said earlier, listen, the Orchard Church, our leadership team, we are not about religion. We are about a relationship with Jesus Christ. The Bible is not about religion. Jesus wasn't for religion. In fact, some of his most... Uh, condemning comments were to the religious of his day. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who writes uh, much of the New Testament, uh, was not about religion. He fought it. He hated it. He battled it. In fact, he dedicated a book to fighting it called the Book of Galatians in the New Testament. We are about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if we're not careful, we can get caught up in religion today. You know, it's happened all throughout time. And we'll continue, as we see here in our text today. But it'll continue to happen. It was in the early church we read about in Acts, just months after Christ's resurrection, just months after Christ had walked the face of this earth. Man's already messing stuff up. There's people going around going, yeah, to be saved, you place your faith in Christ and have surgery. And people are going... Uh, yeah, I can see myself placing my faith in Christ, but being circumcised, I, I, what are you asking me to do here? And Paul's going around going, no, 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 no. It's Christ and Christ alone. 
Not Christ and something. You know, not Christ with something else. It's Christ and Christ alone. And Paul's going around uh, trying to correct these errors that are, that are happening. And listen, it is still going on in the year 2011. When we add works to the grace of God. That's religion. Our own way. When we go, I can't do this and that. I can't do this. And then my life becomes about, I can't do this and I can't do that. And legalism creeps in. By the way, legalism is, is an overemphasis on, on, on rule or conduct, discipline. It's usually misguided zeal that involves pride and ignores mercy and grace. It's superficial, looking godly on the outside, ignoring the grace of God. Now, and, and if any, I'm going to give this disclaimer, and you know me, hopefully, well enough. We need to live right with God. We need to walk in true holiness. You know, we want that. I covet that for all of you. I do. I want that for all of you. But Christians can get to this point of, my, my life's about I can't do this and I can't do that. And what about saying what you can do? The Christian life is really more about what you do, what you can't do. Well, I was a little kid, I was, I was in church, and I went with a friend in his church group, a good church group, on a junior high boys camp out. And after the campfire was done, and all of this had happened, we had eaten, and we were sitting around the picnic table, and the lanterns were on, and all of this, and the leaders of that church youth group, and, and the little group of boys that was there, they got out some cards, some playing cards, and they said, okay, let's, you know, we're going to teach you guys a, a game, a card game. And I said, I can't, it's against my religion. And they looked at me like I was a $3 bill. They were like, what? What, what religion are you? What weird religion are you? And I, you know, I told them where I went to church, and I was like, it's against my religion. And they said, well, well, why? And I said, I don't know, but I've just been told it's against my religion. I can't do that. Well, let's go over here and do that. I can't do that either. You know? And some people are still doing it today in 2011 when we become religious and we say, well, I, there's some things I, can, I, can, I won't do or that I can do, and it's going to make me more right with God. Maybe you're here this morning, and you would define yourself, and you'd say, you know, I've always thought of myself as a pretty religious person. You know, I've done this, or I've done that, or I've gone to such and such church, or I've been a part of this denomination, or my granddaddy was a pastor, and this and that, I was baptized like this, or I was baptized in this place over here, or by so-and-so, but you've never made a personal decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're banking on what your mom said, or your dad said, or your granddaddy said, or one of your siblings told you you did when you were a little kid. And you've never on your own made a decision for Christ. Well, the good news is this. You can do that today. Right here in your seat. From your heart to God's. You can tell him, God, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. Be my Lord and Savior. I'm making this decision on my own. Forgive me. I want you to save me. You can do that right in your seat right now. And end the religion and begin a relationship. And Jesus has the power to break those chains of religion and come into your life 
And it is an awesome thing. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer?